my sense is that during the mid-Neolithic in the 3000s, a lot of the sites were intuitively found. Uh, and they stood over things like uh, blind springs, intersections of water lines and faults and things like that. But in the Bronze Age, after 2500 BC, there was much more megalithic science involved. And they had much more in the way of mathematics, geometry, proportion, astronomy. And they were building up the system into an integrated system much more. Hi there, I'm Graham Gardner, and thanks for joining us for Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 55. Now, I am really not sure how best to introduce today's guest. He is a teacher, astrologer, futurist, humanitarian, prehistorian, shaman, a prolific author, web designer, community leader, environmental activist, counsellor. In fact, there are few areas of human experience that Paulden Jenkins has not turned his hand to. He is a true polymath and is one of the most vibrant intellects that I've ever encountered. I first met Paulden over two decades ago when he was living in Glastonbury, uh, where he was a community organiser, founder of the Glastonbury Camps, which led on to become Oak Dragon Camps. He also ran the Isle of Avalon Town website and created the Glastonbury Leyline map. Now he lives down in West Penwith at the very end of Cornwall and has turned his attention to mapping similar alignments between ancient sites and landscape features in the area producing a wonderful interactive online map of ancient Penwith, which is what I thought this podcast was going to be about. But it didn't take too long for the conversation to veer off into several more expansive areas, as you will hear. So, fasten your seatbelts and enjoy this whirlwind dip into the world of Paulden Jenkins. So, Paulden, um, I first met you, I guess, in Glastonbury... And uh, I knew you best for your Glastonbury Leyline map at the time. Uh, but now you've moved down to Cornwall and you've done the same thing for West Penwith. Yes, yes. And it happened in quite a remarkable way as well. Uh, I was sitting chatting to uh, Cheryl Straffen, who is a well-known oh, yeah. uh, archaeologist and Earth Mysteries person down here. And I was saying, had anyone done a map of the ancient sites of West Penwith and she said no and I said well I'm a cartographer would you like to uh, have me do one and, I, and she said oh yes and so I started working on the alignments that John Michel had done back in 1972 three the old stones of Land's End yes that one yeah and then I started adding more that had been found by other researchers around here and that all went well. And then suddenly, late one night, I made an amazing discovery, which just amped the whole thing up tremendously. And um, so it's kind of gone on from there, really. And all of the, uh, the, the work I've done on this is reported on the uh, ancient Penwith website, which I've given you the link to. Yeah, it's, it's um, quite remarkable, the amount of work that you have done on this. 
And uh, just to give people an example, I mean, I've got a moderately fast machine, and it really chugs down a lot when I start loading up that map on Google. Yeah, yeah, there's so much information on it. It is quite amazing. Well, there is, yes. But the the interesting thing here is that West Penwith is an amazingly it's amazingly dense with ancient sites. There are over 500, um, big and small ones, and. Um, it's a very small area as well. It's only about 10 miles by 15. And the interesting thing from a geomancer's viewpoint and a researcher's viewpoint is that it's surrounded by sea cliffs on three sides. Mm. So it's a very distinct area with definite boundaries to it. And then also on the eastern side, the landward side, there's a very distinct border, uh, geomantically speaking, uh, and the border is formed by three hills, which happen to be aligned with each other exactly. Um, one is St. Michael's Mount, which everyone will probably know. Another one is Trencrom Hill, which is the, the hill under which the Dowser Hamish Miller used to live. And then the other one is, uh, is um, St. Ives Head, uh, also called the island in St. Ives. And uh, so these form the eastern boundary of Penwith. So there's a very concise area. And uh, nowadays, of course, West Penwith is very marginal, very peripheral to to uh, to Britain. You know, it's at the other end from Caithness and Orkney. Yeah, but really. Um, but on the other hand, in terms of the Atlantic megalithic culture of the uh, of the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, uh, it was at the centre of things uh, because that culture went from Portugal, uh, Galicia, to Brittany, to Britain and Ireland, to southern Scandinavia. And, um, of course, West Penwith was at the junction point for much of the sea traffic uh, going up and down that axis. Well, of course, plus you had the, the, the tin mining in Cornwall. Yes, that came along a little bit later. It started with gold, actually. Uh, people picking up nodules of gold and, the, and copper uh, around the place, and then tin came along. And the fascinating thing with that one is that although there was tin, uh, well, in those days it was streaming. Uh, they used to uh, mess around with the rivers and cause the rivers to erode the banks. And then they'd have people downstream and they'd pick up the nodules of, of tin from that um, because the tools, you know, the rock around here is granite and it just doesn't yield unless you've got steel. Yeah. Uh, and so tin mining started only a few centuries ago, whereas in the, the Bronze Age, um, it was tin streaming and, and just picking up nodules, which was the main thing. And tin was a high-value um, product. Um, basically, bronze is made up of 90% copper and 10% tin. And around uh, St. Just, where I live, Botalic in particular, there is a particular kind of tin which is rich in arsenic, which hardens the tin even more. And so this means that you can have sharper points and harder... Uh, tools and things like this and and nicer adornments and things and so this tin is found as far as syria and south germany 
and um, the people of the Bronze Age, at first they started exporting the tin to Ireland and to Brittany. Hmm. Uh, the Irish were ahead of the British in terms of bronze making because they had some good copper res reserves in Ireland, in uh, Southeast Ireland, I think it was. Uh, and so the tin used to be exported to Ireland and they would make up the bronze and they would make bronze crafts from it and then they would re-export it to Britain. Uh, and so the, the for the first two to three hundred years after the development of bronze technology, the, the people of Penwith didn't actually adopt uh, bronze smelting or craft work until later, which is fascinating, really. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. We've kind of jumped right into the deep end of things there. Um, I was, wanted to get you to define a little bit about uh, a little bit more about the alignments, uh, and I guess we have to then get into what do we call a ley line? How, yes. do, we how do we define a ley? Well, I'm I'm referring to alignments in terms of um, in John Michel's and Alfred Watkins's terms, uh, which basically they are found by um, working with maps and uh, identifying alignments with maps. And on the alignment map that I've made for West Penwith, we have a very tight uh, set of parameters for it. Uh, we have a three-meter accuracy level uh, on all of the alignments. Uh, sometimes with big sites such as stone circles, we'll stretch it to five meters, but that's it. And so these alignments are very accurate, but they are different from what dowsers pick up. Uh, now here, of course, we come into the business that different dowsers um, uh, perceive and experience and pick up different things. Of course. And there are some dowsers who do seem to pick up on what I've heard called thought lines or consciousness lines, uh, which could be uh, the same as classic uh, ancient site alignments but um and there's there's been no study anywhere that i know of of the extent to which alignments and um energy lines that dowsers pick up on coincide uh, around west penwith i would guess uh, i'd hazard to guess it's around 20 to 30 percent a co a coincidence of the two kinds of alignments or, or lines, but I don't think it's universal or terribly common. Um, okay, uh, well, that, now that seems a reasonable assumption. Um, I mean, we have spoken about this in previous podcasts, so I think uh, regular listeners will be aware of the difference between uh, a classical Watkins lay and a Dowser's energy lay, for example. Yeah. So the alignments here, I mean, are we, if we're talking classical Watkins alignments, does that mean the sites are all intervisible along the alignment? No, no, they aren't. And um, in Cornwall, or at least in West Cornwall, there is no um, connection between ancient trackways uh, and alignments either. Uh, you do get this up in places like Herefordshire. Yeah. Um, but you don't get it down here. So they weren't trackways, uh, they were something else. And also you don't get uh, sight intervisibility necessarily, except in about, again, I'd say 20 or 30% of cases. Uh, you'll get an alignment going over a brow of a hill, 
so that you can't see the next site on that alignment. Um, and so intervisibility is not a major issue, although I'm going to my next bit of research is actually going to be to to map the intervisibility of all the sites in Penwith, uh, because I think this is a factor. Yeah, um, it's an obvious factor when you sit when you stand in the landscape and there you are on a on a hill and you can see uh, other ancient sites. And some of some of these, I'm sure this is the case in Scotland and and around the the rest of Britain. Sometimes some of these sites are amazingly placed. Yeah. So that if you just go thirty or fifty yards away from the site, the various other sites will just disappear from view. And so some of the placings of these sites is quite amazing in its own right from a from a site intervisibility viewpoint. And so, and I think this is a very relevant thing. We could call intervisible sites a two-point alignment, but there aren't often uh, sites in between which would indicate an alignment satisfactorily to a lay hunter. And so um, we can't exactly call them alignments, but they're certainly sight lines. Well, I guess the question has to be asked, and I know um, John Michelle was asked the same question by Aubrey Burrell, uh, do we infer that the sites are deliberately placed to create the alignment or are we just detecting the alignments by connecting dots on the map? Ah, yes, this is a very interesting point. Uh, I think it's both and. Uh, my sense, and again, drawing from my understanding of what happens in West Penwith, my sense is that during the mid-Neolithic in the 3000s, a lot of the sites were intuitively found. Uh, and they stood over things like uh, blind springs and um, intersections of water lines and faults and things like that. Um, but in the Bronze Age, uh, after 2500 BC, there was much more megalithic science involved. And they had much more in the way of mathematics, geometry, proportion, uh, astronomy, and they were building up the system into an integrated system much more. And so I think it's both and. I think sites which are older, certainly uh, the you could say the energy came first. Hmm. Uh, it will have been modified uh, in various ways by human intervention. But I think that that came first. But later on, you have situations where they would erect uh, menhirs uh, or stone circles even. No, perhaps not stone circles, menhirs mainly, uh, and mounds where they would be plopping something down and you'd start getting that phenomenon which I've heard modern stone circle builders have discovered, which is that when you put down one of these sites, you'll get a certain migration of energy towards that site. And so my theory is that the initial sites were laid down intuitively based on real detectable energy. And then later sites were a mixture of those, but an, a, a kind of an extrapolation of the system, a mixture of those plus the in a way, the imposition of megalithic science in order to create connections 
and create uh, much more of a whole system. Uh, and I think this is a very, very important thing. We tend to get stuck in individual sites and looking at them in isolation. Uh, when really, it seems to me that certainly in certain areas where ancient sites are denser, um, they were trying to build integrated systems of some sort. And my theory on this is that they were in the business of uh, what nowadays is called geoengineering. Um, we have this situation on planet Earth where we've really screwed it up uh, climatically and environmentally. And there are plans afoot at the moment to try and engineer this uh, to shift the climate, to, to absorb carbon dioxide and do various other things like that. And uh, that's nowadays being called geoengineering. And I think the, the ancient systems were uh, aimed at um, a kind of a natural form of geoengineering. And uh, people like John Michel and people like Tom Graves came up with this in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Graves with his idea that, that <clears throat> things like menhirs and stone circles are akin to acupuncture needles. And that, uh, therefore, if you work on enhancing the energy in, at a particular site, then it'll radiate out <clears throat> along through the alignments and also through the underground water and possibly other subtle energy means uh, to affect the whole of the landscape. Yeah, well, this, this is the whole basis of um, geomancy and uh, geomantic yeah. thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I think they were going at this on a much larger scale in certain areas in particular. Uh, there are perhaps, at a guess, about 15 dense areas in Britain. Uh, Aberdeenshire, for example, is one of them. Yeah. Uh, West Penwith, Dartmoor, Bodmin Moor are another. Salisbury Plain, uh, the Cotswold area, uh, parts of uh, Cumbria, you know, uh, there are these agglomerations of ancient sites, and I think they were building much more of a, of a, an integrated system with these, where they were trying to work with subtle energy and consciousness, uh, and the physical world to try and, in some way, moderate or modulate the energy situations in those areas. And I think there's something very, very important for us to learn today from all that, uh, given that we have an enormous environmental crisis now and a, a problem in the relationship between human civilization and nature. Uh, and so I think there's the, the, this, this gives new meaning to geomancy, really, because it's not just a romantic interest in the past, fascinating as it is, but I think there's something really important for the future here. And this is what people like John Michel were beginning to allude to. But I think the the issue has become much clearer in recent decades. It concerns partially, it concerns the difference. And th this is a hypothesis, right? It concerns the difference between lay alignments and dowsable energy and lays and water lines and things like that. The thing with dowsable um, lines and flows 
is that they seem to have a certain directionality to them. They seem to have a certain sequence to them, um, which probably fluctuates by season and by phase of the moon and other factors. And again, this is an area which requires millions of pounds worth of research to, to, uh, to really prove this point because it would take a lot of observation over time to, to really uh, pin this one down. But there's that one. But there's another problem, issue here, which is that at least quite a lot of dowsers don't seem to pick up uh, alignments in the Alfred, Alfred Watkins and the John Michel sense of alignments. And yet, ancient sites were built and placed to fit into alignments. So there's obviously a real reason for this. There's a, there's a practical reason. They wouldn't have bothered otherwise unless it was practical in some way, unless it did something in their perception. And um, my theory is that this has to do with something which in physics they call quantum entanglement. Uh-huh. Now, this is, this is getting into interesting stuff. Because when you split the atom and you, you bang it open and, and think bits fly off all over the place, what they found is that separate atomic particles will behave very similarly, even if they are a long, long way away from each other. And especially, they have no medium of connection. Yeah. Now, there are other other parallels to this one other one is is in humans which is the the question of identical twins and you get this phenomenon where you get twins who are separated at birth and they are given different lives and some of them don't even know that they're a twin but when you put them together again you find that they have events in their lives which are exactly parallel and timed simultaneously yeah and then there are other things, too. For example, there are the two hemispheres of the brain. And it has been found in neuro, neuroscience that the connections between the right and the left-hand side of the brains are insufficient to cover the amount of bandwidth, bandwidth which would be needed for the two parts of the brain to communicate with one another. There's, an act, there's a barrier between the left and the right brains, which actually prevents quite a lot of interaction between the two sides. And of course, this is very interesting to dowsers because, because dowsing is a combination of uh, rationality and intuition, uh, of consciousness and unconsciousness, or semi-consciousness. And um, so, so I think what I've been coming up with is this business which Einstein used to call spooky action at a distance. Yeah. And it's where separate entities can nevertheless co-resonate when there is no medium of communication between them. And this seems to be the case, really, with aligned ancient sites. There seems in... in well, in, in some cases, there are li- lines of communication which dowsers can pick up, but not in all cases. And um, so there seems to be some kind of um, synchronous co-resonance between them. 
even though they have no actual means of contact between one another that a dowser can pick up. Well, I'm recalling uh, some experiments that were done uh, again back in the 90s um, where dowsers were trying to send imagery, and you know, sort of telepathic images along uh, a lay yeah. uh, yeah. with some success. I know Michael yes. Cook did a lot of work using Zenocard images and just transmitting them along a lay. Yes. Yes, and there is some uh, evidence that there is a kind of a line of thought or something that can uh, can go along these. Um, but it's, again, this is one of those areas where we haven't done enough work, systematic work, and this is, I think this is one of the big problems in geomancy, you know, is that there are no research grants and there's no... There's no uh, real opportunity for doing ongoing systematic work over yeah. a longer period of time and over a larger area. And, uh, and so we're really hampered by this, this problem. And unfortunately, of course, it's ideological. It's, it's to do with the, the ideal ideology of our current civilization, which is in denial about certain uh, parapsychological issues certain issues about the relationship between consciousness and matter and all sorts of other things which we all know and love. <laughs> yeah, but even within the dowsing community, there's still the uh, uh, lack of a definitive knowledge of what we're talking about. People yes. find different things, people call things different names, you know, it's really hard to get everybody on the same page about what they're actually talking about. Well, it is. I think there's a resolution to this, though. Uh, I mean, I, one of my other lines of business is uh, as a peacemaker in conflict areas and quite frankly what you've got to do is you've got to first of all sit down and make friends with each other and drink a lot of tea together and then and talk about each other's children and then you've got to find your minimal points of contact um, upon which you can agree or at least agree to disagree uh, and then you after that you can you can define those areas where you basically just do not have agreement and on those things, there are three different uh, things to identify in such a negotiation. One is um, your bottom line beyond which you're, you're not willing to budge. And one is your highest hope, which is the ideal solution that you can see. And then the third one is the reasonable middle point somewhere between those two, which it's likely you could come to if you worked at it. <laughs> and so... And I think dowsers really, I think there's a big challenge for dowsers, and it might be that a new generation of dowsers, that it'll fall on them. Um, I think there's a big challenge for dowsers to sit down and agree some basic um, common terminologies and ways of seeing things and to work on that basis so that they can work together and produce uh, repeatable results, which is an important factor, but then also to incorporate individual perceptions into into the, these things, which are perfectly fine. Um, it, so I think a mixture of these two things is possible, and I think it's incumbent on dowsers and geomancers in general to to sit down and try to find a basic set of minimum agreements they can come to and this i think is possible because another one of my the hats i wear is as an astrologer 
and quite frankly, astrologers were ripping each other apart, each other apart in the 1980s and early 1990s. But now we're very much more together. And um, we do have the advantage of working with roughly the same planets and roughly the same concepts. But but there, th this this is in a way a kind of a pathological individualism that's involved in this. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think I think for the sake of moving the whole subject forward, I think some basic agreements would be good to come to. Um, well, of course, this was this was the uh, part of the remit of the the BSD Earth Energies Group. Yeah. Uh, when Billy Gohan produced the glossary of dowsing terms, uh, which yeah. used to be online, uh, hopefully it will be soon. I'm hoping to recreate that. Um, that's one of my next projects to do. Um, but you know, still the difference between say uh, the UK and America, uh, yeah. like having been to the American conventions quite regularly, uh, I still have to try and get them to stop talking about ley lines. Mm -hmm. And just call them lays because you know yes. what is a ley line. Yeah, you know there's there's still a different perception on uh, what we well, actually they, mean they by that. They don't really have uh, ley lines in the Alfred Watkins sense in uh, America. Yeah, with a few exceptions. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So they're dosing uh, an energy form. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so they're working much more with nature and with some. Uh, cultural formats uh, in American history, but it's certainly not as dense or ad, uh, or as advanced as it was here yeah. in Britain during, the, during ancient times. Um, as an aside, I was interested to learn when I was um, uh, researching this for uh, one of my talks last year, uh, Watkins never included stone circles in his original alignments. Yes. They were added by Paul Devereux. Um, that was a yes. bit of an eye-opener for me. It seems such yes. an obvious well, thing. Yeah. Yes, well, there's another thing too, because because when I was doing the map of West Penwith, I was looking at what John Michel did, and he was focusing really on men, heroes, and stone circles, and he wasn't looking at hills. Yeah. And also here in Penwith, we have a we have a natural feature, <clears throat> which they call cliff castles, although I prefer to call them cliff sanctuaries, and they are headlands, which stick out into the ocean, mm. and um, and. What I've found is that these are really, really important sites. And I think one of the things we've got to go back to is the fact that in the Neolithic, the mid-Neolithic Neolithic in particular, Britain was forested. Yeah. And, uh, and it was above 90% forested. And so the issue was to get out of the forest and you would do this on hilltops and also in my area, at least, but also in coastal areas, it would be um, coastal headlands. And by that means, you could get out of this otherwise rather constraining forest environment. And I, I, I've lived in Sweden for seven years. And believe me, it really is a very big perceptual change when you live in an environment where you'll only ever see 300 yards yeah and um so so hilltops and also natural features such as headlands are very very important and what i've found in penwith and i think this will apply to some other areas uh perhaps to argyleshire uh pembrokeshire um isle of man uh, areas with coasts 
uh, with noteworthy coasts, you know, which are which are remarkable coasts. Um, uh, the the headlands are very very important, and what I've found is that the the old some of the oldest sites in West Penwith are actually on alignments between these headlands, and I discovered this accidentally one night. I was just I was sitting around sort of free associating at about one o'clock in the morning, and I was thinking to myself about about uh, St. Michael's Mount. And I was thinking, yes, well, it rises out of the sea. It's conical. It's got certain features. And then I was thinking about Cape Cornwall, which is close to me, which is the same thing. It's another one of these headlands, conical, city, prominent in the sea. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if there's anything going between them. So I got my ruler out and bang, it goes right through some, some um, big... Uh, platform cairns which are on the hill just above my house here Hmm. and suddenly this was like a big revelation and so I suddenly start looking at the other cliff castles in the area and suddenly you have things like Lanyon Coit which is uh, a a dolmen and bang it's on the exact intersection of three what I've now come to call backbone alignments which go between these cliff castles and the the other major sites are Neolithic tors, uh, which are granite outcrops with funny granitic rocks on top. Yeah, and uh, we have them in Penwith, Bodmin Moor, and Dartmoor. And um, so these turn out, therefore, to form the basis of the alignment system in West Penwith. Uh, And it must go back to at least 3,700 BCE, very early, because of these alignments that go through Lanyon Coit, which itself was built at 3,700 BCE. Okay. And this means that the cliff castles themselves were major sites in the mid-Neolithic too. And lo and behold, All of the four remaining stone circles uh, in Penwith, of which there were originally about 10, uh, all of the four remaining stone circles are all on these backbone alignments, aligned with cliff castles and with Neolithic tor enclosures. Hmm. And so this means that there was quite a large-scale integrated system going on here, And then during the Bronze Age, they started building the stone circles and the men heroes and lots of different uh, cairns and tumuli to uh, extrapolate this system, to give it more detail and to make it more localized and things like this. And those are more the classic ley lines. Yeah, okay. And so what John Michel was... um, was um, involved with he was actually dealing with the Bronze Age and the the whole system had actually been going on for at least 12 to 1500 years before that in the near in the mid Neolithic hi I'm Merlin and I'm a property clearer and you are listening to Adventures in Dowsing Okay, just a couple of news items I wanted to impart. Uh, I have set up this new website, which you can find at britishdowsing.net. 
And the reason I did this was that the uh, BSD back in February of 2018, and it's now December as I'm recording this, had uh, decided that they wanted to change their website. So in the process of shifting uh, hosting providers and all that, they somehow inadvertently lost the dowsing forum, which I'd been running since 2004 under my administration. And uh, this had a a great repository of dowsing discussions, so uh, naturally people were quite upset about this, and I know the office were getting a lot of uh, angry emails and phone calls. Uh, However, the good news is that I got in touch with the old hosting providers who still had a backup copy of the database sitting on their servers. So uh, with the permission of the uh, society, I've set it up on this new website, so it's now completely independent from the BSD. All the old discussions are still there, so it's a good uh, repository of information. It's open to anybody. You can register on the forum, and you have access to a good pool of uh, dowsers from uh, all over the world. Um, So I hope it gets back to being the premier dowsing discussion forum on the internet. And the reason I still like using forums as opposed to uh, social media for these things is that the conversations last a long time. They might not be as quick to get an answer, but uh, some of these threads do go back several years. So you can get uh, access to uh, a great pool of information. Whereas on uh, Facebook or Twitter, if if you ask a question, in a couple of days it's disappeared off the bottom of the page and you can never find it again. So that's why I think forums still have have a place for us. So I hope you go and check it out. Uh, Also on this website, I've just finished uploading the final issue of the uh, BSD Earth Energies Group newsletter. Uh, The Earth Energies Special Interest Group was uh, the first special interest group in the society, and they've published a quarterly newsletter from 1996 to 2005, when it was absorbed into the main Dowsing Today magazine. Uh, So uh, some great articles in there from some of the great names of the time, uh, which are still very valid today. So I do urge you to go and check it out. There's there's some great information, some great research in there to be found. Uh, So that's BritishDowsing.net. Do go and check it out. And now let's get back to our conversation with Paulden. And things are starting to get interesting. Now, uh, I'd like to, can I, can I tell you another thing, which uh, uh, is another one of my working hypotheses, sure. which I think might be rather important. <clears throat> it's something which is called the Peora Oscillation, which happened around about 3200 BCE, and it lasted for two to 300 years, up to around 1900 BCE. And this was a sudden climatic downturn which the scientists reckon uh, was caused by either a supervolcano or an asteroid strike somewhere in the world, which threw up a vast amount of dust and caused the temperature of the world to go down critically. Now, before that, in the mid-Neolithic, in the 3000s, the climate of at least this part of Britain was similar to somewhere like Bordeaux or the Dordogne in um, mid-southern France. It was one to two degrees warmer than it is now. Mm. And all of the Atlantic depressions which which uh, hit us uh, on days like today, <laughs> all the Atlantic depressions that we now get, they used to go north of Britain. 
Uh, probably Scotland used to get more of them, but they used to go north of Scotland as well and hit Norway and Iceland. And so the climate was much better during the Neolithic. Um, and then suddenly it deteriorated and it was a bit cooler during the, the Bronze Age, but the Bronze Age was still warmer than today. Uh, and then you had a big climatic deterioration round about 1200 BCE, which also happens to be the end of the megalithic era. Uh, although I think that end wasn't caused climatically. I think it was caused more socially and culturally. I think uh, there was just a change in humans' interests. And around that time, round about 1200 BCE, you had much more sedentary farming, you had weapons coming in, you had the use of horses, you had uh, increased stratification of society, and you had the end of the megalithic era, which had been peaking from about two, uh, 2200 through to about 1800 BCE, which was the zenith of the, uh, of the megalithic era. But, but this pure oscillation from 3200 to 1900 BCE seems to separate the large megalithic period into two sections. And down here, we have, before that time, we have three things. We have Neolithic tor enclosures, we have coits or, or dolmens, and then we have some of the chambered cairns. And then there seems to have been a pause in building, and people went downhill, and they cowered in the forests in a way and they survived their way through the Piora oscillation and then they came out as the climate started improving again and by about 2700 600 500 um, they started building new sites and this is the growth of places like Stonehenge and Avebury and uh, <clears throat> probably many of the sites in Scotland they don't really know enough about Scotland to say um, and so, although I wouldn't be too deterministic about the effects of climate, I think one of one of my hypotheses is that the Bronze Age uh, megalithic building period was, in a sense, a kind of an environmental movement. And I think they were saying, we must not have this again. And they, did, they wouldn't have known the cause of the Piora oscillation, which, as I say, scientists reckon was either a big volcano or uh, an asteroid strike. But they will probably have thought that somehow we have not pleased the gods. Somehow yeah. we haven't been getting it right. And therefore we must do all that we can to get things right. And the, the, the Bronze Age megalithic period was a tremendous period of engineering. They, they really put a lot of work into it. And uh, in order to justify doing that, they must have had a really strong idea going on in their, in their minds to motivate this. And I think this might perhaps give a kind of a motive for that whole building period uh, because obviously they were looking at things like earth fertility. They were looking at things like empowerment of seeds. They were looking at human happiness. They were looking at earth energy. Um, and they were looking at the stars and the and sun and moon. 
and they were trying to integrate this all together into much more of a an integrated system which was in a sense kind of pre-daoist yeah um it was something to do with bringing heaven and earth and humanity into harmony with one another yeah, and, would you, um, your your piora oscillation would surely affect um, astronomical observations if the sky was very uh, dusty. It probably would. Yes, it probably would. Yeah, and that's something we haven't um, yet talked about. But uh, I know you think yes. there was a lot of um, astronomy going on at the ancient sites, and many of there the uh, the alignments are astronomical alignments. Yes, so there is. Again, this is an, another area which requires a few million pounds for a research project. Really. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, obviously they were aligning their, uh, particularly things like chambered cairns, um, to uh, the particularly the rising points of the sun and also the moon at its standstill points. Um, which is an 18.6-year cycle, yeah. and it alternates from the lunar maximum to the lunar minimum every nine years. Um, and the the issue with the lunar standstills is that the moon is higher or lower in the sky during these times. And during the lunar maximum, um, when you have the uh, midwinter full moon, which is the sun the sun is round the winter solstice point and then the the moon is round the summer solstice point so it's 23 degrees higher in the sky now during the lunar maximum it'll be 5 degrees higher than that yeah. in the sky and that definitely does seem to intensify um events here on earth it tends to bring things to a head and to make the moon's influence more intense um and so they were obviously trying to pick up on these particular times um and i don't think this was just to do with calendars uh or, or anything like that they they weren't really fixated i don't think on days weeks and months in the way that we are and obviously we need a, a, a an exact calendar and we need clocks because we live in a complex situ uh, civilization. And so, you know, I have to say to you, you know, I'll meet you at Glasgow Central on at three o'clock on the 25th of April next year. And thereby we can coincide. Otherwise we're lost. Yeah. And, um, but they, they weren't so bothered about that. You know, they, they, they would go to a place and they'd hang around for a few days and wait for people to come along when they could, you know. And, um, but they were interested in aligning them, their activities to the, the, the movements of the, particularly the sun and moon. And this concerned planting. It concerns short, the movement of shoals of fish. It concerned the migration of birds. It concerned uh, things like full moons. You know, the, the sun uh, influences the movements of the seasons but you'll find, particularly in spring and autumn, that basically there's always a critical shift in the weather and in the behavior of nature around full moons and new moons. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when, when the swallows come and nest in the barn next to me, they always, always, always arrive on a full moon to the day, hmm. to the day. And we get geese coming through here, coming through from Iceland and Norway on their way south. And they, again, they arrive 
around a full moon or a new moon. And they hang out around here for two weeks and then they head south, you know, and they land up in the Camargue or somewhere like that. And so so this business of of tracking the sun and the moon was very, very important because it made life easier. It helped, it meant that you could you could understand when was a good time to go out whaling if that was, you know, what you were doing. But people in places like the Hebrides and places like Cornwall, they did go whaling. And yeah. if, you caught, if you caught one whale, you could feed the whole of your tribe for three months, <laughs> yeah. you know, on, on whale meat. And you can get all sorts of other products from it as well. So this is big stuff. And, of course, whaling is a very difficult activity, especially if you're doing it in, a, in canoes and a corral or something like that, you know. Uh, and so it's a high risk activity. And so you've got to get it dead right. Um, and they didn't just didn't have the bulldozer mentality that we have. And they didn't have the shelter and the 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 uh, the technologies that we have. And so this business of astronomical alignment was very important. Now, with things like chambered cans, for example, there's something here where they're trying to lock time into space right because because uh, uh, the chamber of a cairn will be aligned to a certain point such as the the rising point of the summer solstice sun or of the sun at a certain time of year and um so and in some way they were trying to to capture that light and perhaps to send it down into the underworld because these chambered cairns usually sit on top of either a blind spring or a, an intersection of water lines. And so they're obviously trying to take it down in some way. But also there's something about the meditative and spiritual aspects of all this as well. Um, something Because when you get inside a chambered cairn, there's an amazing stillness to it. There, there's there's something very profound, which you hear about about say Tibetan lamas who were locked up in caves for for three years or longer, uh, in order to experience timelessness and the void, or, or you have people like the Kogi Mamas, for example, the the shamans of uh, of northern Colombia. I don't know if you remember that book about the Kogi. Uh, it was called The Heart of the World that came out around about 1990. Mm -hmm. And again, the, the, the mamas used to go down into caves for up to 20 years and they would experience sensory deprivation and this would help them develop their extrasensory powers, their abilities to, to read the nature of, of the times, to work with subtle energy, to perform healings, to, to know what's going on at a distance and all these kinds of things. And I think that's what a lot of chambered cairns are all about. They're not about burial. Yeah. They're not, they're not about burial. You, you, you do get the bones there, but basically these are probably the bones of the ancestors which they used as sacred relics, rather like medieval Christians used to do with the relics of the saints. You know, they were holy, holy objects and they, they, connected you with with your with the source with the shoulders on which we are standing today 
Yeah, um, and we still we still do this today in the Catholic Church, you know, with the holy yeah. relics. Um, I was, actually, I was just looking up yesterday because it was um, St. Andrew's Day here. Um, yeah. I was just looking up where the bones of St. Andrew were, and they're now in Edinburgh. So. Yes, and there's the modern thing where people go and scatter their, their dad's ashes on a power place. Yeah, yeah. You know, on Glastonbury Tor, it's getting to be an ecological problem, actually, because so many people, so many people are scattering ashes and it's altering the ecology of the Tor. You yeah. know, and so they're having to ban it, unfortunately. And it happens on some of the headlands around Cornwall as well, you know. But, but and so there's this mo- a modern thing, which is very, very ancient as well, which is about scattering ashes. Mm. And um, so there's something about about the the chamber cairns which was important now rather interestingly with stone circles although there is um there are astronomical mathematics involved in a lot of stone circles all of the stone circles in penwith for example have 19 stones which has to do with the metonic cycle uh which is the eclipse cycle and it's the time when it's every 18.6 years that the solar and the lunar calendars coincide. Otherwise, they, are, they um, differ from one another. Yeah. Uh, the cycle of the phases of the moon, that is, and the cycle of the year. And so people used to run two calendars at the same time. One was solar, one was lunar, and for different purposes. And they would coincide every 18.6 years, which is why there are 19 stones in many stone circles, although not all all. And um, so although there's this astronomical factor in stone circles, um, one recent finding that's happened down here is that there don't seem to be too many solar alignments from them. They're usually one or two only. And so it seems that really it, it seems to be the chambered cairns in particular, plus certain alignments between ancient sites which are the main astronomical ones. And it mainly seems to be um, um, identified with the sun and moon. They could have been identified with stars, but there is a problem. And that is that most stars in Britain don't actually appear when they come over the horizon. There's this thing, phenomenon called extinction, which is that basically there's so much atmosphere uh, when we're looking at something on the horizon, there's so much atmosphere our sight has to get through that the light from a star can't actually get through it. So it only appears when it's about 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 degrees above the horizon when it's when the, there's less atmosphere for it to get through. Hmm. So I'm not sure if there are alignments to the stars, but and it's also rather difficult to prove. Yeah, really. yeah. Because uh, there's been so much but, movement with the stars and less movement with the sun and the moon. They're still fairly yes. regular. Yeah. Yes. And so certainly astronomy comes into it. And there seem to be a number of different factors, therefore, which feed into the location of ancient sites. Uh, see if I can remember them all. Uh, <laughs> one, one of them is alignments. One of them is underground water. One of them is astronomical factors. One of them is intervisibility between sites. One of them obviously will have been things like mythology and what you could call psychogeography. It's what 
it's the stories that people weave around the landscape. And another one is this amorphous term genius loci, which might be very much to do with all of the above that I've listed thus far. And and so there are things which are partially geological, they're partially uh, uh, to do with alignments, they're partially to do with intervisibility, all these kinds of things. And at many of the stone of the uh, ancient sites, there seem to be at least two, three or four of these factors which all come together at that site. And it's quite amazing some of the locational issues that do come up. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you've you, you know the beauty of some of these places where you get you. How is it that you can get alignments and underground water and astronomical factors and site intervisibility at the same men here? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's part of the magic of this whole thing, and it it does lead us towards this uh, notion of um what's it what is it sort of um divine intelligence that is behind uh the creation of the natural environment mm. i mean i i've i've identified six natural alignments of hills in just penwith yeah and that's just a small area of 10 by 15 miles yeah well that's and, that's a whole other uh, other issue you know is um, yeah does the actual geography of the earth conform to some etheric blueprints such yeah. that hills appear in alignments? You know, it does yes. seem to be the case. And th this is obviously very confronting to our, our sense of logic uh, and rationality, but uh, there's an amazing beauty to the, the uh, positioning of so many ancient sites, which is just magical. It, it can sometimes bring tears to your eyes yeah. uh, to, to witness it. It's, it's quite remarkable. And how they figured this out, I just do not know. Yeah, and then and of how course, they did the surveying as well. How how did they do the surveying to create exact alignments over thirty miles that are accurate to within three yards? Yeah, with how just, did they do that with just two six, according to Watkins? <laughs> yes, yes, without a satellite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, there's all the uh, subsequent cultures that make use of these sites and extend the network. Like, yeah. I'm thinking of the, the Pilgrim Crosses in Cornwall, which is yes. a whole other network, a whole other overlay. Yes. Old churches, old roads, all sorts of things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, which went up to at least the 1500s. Yeah, yeah. Or at least perhaps it was the Black Death which killed it off. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was partially because it, during the Black Death... Everyone ran to the monasteries because the monasteries had well were the big healers uh, at the time, and of course this killed off a lot of the monks yeah. and it killed off a lot of the knowledge. Right. Okay. So between that and the Reformation. Yes. 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 Yeah. Indeed. Well, gosh, um, uh, I could talk all day about this, Paulden, but uh, there's a couple of other things I wanted to ask you. Just uh, having mm. the opportunity. A few days ago, there was that big seismic event. Did you hear about that? Between Africa and Madagascar? There was some oh, yeah. some undersea collapse and the entire earth rang like a bell. Yes. Yeah. Um, it got me thinking, I know um, Rory Duff, who runs the Bristol Dowsers, has yeah. this theory that the uh, a lot of the stuff he picks up is due to a really low subsonic resonance from the earth's mm -hmm. core 
doing mm -hmm. rotations. Like it's like a standing wave. Yeah. Um, so that got me thinking of that and how much that sort of thing uh, creates these earth energies that we find. Yes. Um, I think that we have a conceptual problem in the West. And I think the Soviets were on to, Soviet scientists were on to something very interesting in the 1970s and 80s. And it arises from the fact that they used to look at the world in terms of frequencies rather than in terms of particles. Mm. And by thinking in terms of particles in the West, we are making uh, things, we're making life into things. But when you look in terms of frequencies, then you're onto a different uh, wavelength, really. And it means that there's a continual uh, spectrum, which is both visible and tangible, but, be, but also beyond it, um, of different kinds of frequencies. And this allowed Soviet scientists to start relate, uh, researching the relationship between consciousness and matter. And uh, I, I met a scientist, for example, in the 1980s uh, from um, Le then Leningrad, and he was researching the effect of church bells on agricultural fertility. And he found that the influence of church bells went for five times the, the audible distance of the, of the bells. Hmm. And so, um, so here we're talking about sound. And uh, as you say, the, when you get major geological events, it causes the earth to resonate. And this can be called a kind of subsonic sound. But there's also, there has also been research being done about the sound of uh, standing stones yeah. um, in stone circles and things like that. And uh, there's a, quite a viable theory that, they, that stones were quite tuned. Um, and so, yes, there's something here about... Uh, resonance, sound, energy, vibration, uh, and consciousness, and light, and magnetism, and gravity, uh, which are all, uh, and subtle energy as well, which are all connected. Yeah. We have these very inadequate terms to, 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 uh, to uh, describe them, but they are all related on a continual spectrum. And... And so there is something to this. And again, the, the ancient people obviously knew or at least sensed something around all this. Uh, and this is something where they were far more advanced than we are. And, and I don't know how we're going to progress in this, but we really do need to do so. And it does have something to do. It borders into parapsychology, this whole thing. Um, and so we're, we're coming into stuff around Yuri Geller, um, or, you know, the way he used to boon, spend, uh, to bend spoons. Uh, and then there's the stuff that was done by people like Matthew Manning yeah. in the 1970s about growing seeds. And there's the whole thing about sharpening razor blades inside pyramids and all these kinds of things. Uh, and the work of people like Victor Schauberger, uh, with, uh, his ideas around the force of gravity and the force of levity. Yeah. And, and this is a whole area which we really need to open up. 
and again, it it requires an enormous research program um, to to um, to get into this. I think we in the West are too stuck in our old concepts now to really go into it, and it probably will be the Chinese and the Indians who do it, mm. um, because they have a looser attitude towards um, scientific reality, and they also have much more respect for their ancient traditions, uh, especially in in the healing modalities, but also the spiritual uh, stuff, you know, the the kind of the science of consciousness and psychology, which the Buddhists had, for example, was very, very advanced. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so yes, this is an area which we really badly do need to look into for the future. And I think it is critical as well in terms of dealing with our environmental issues. Uh, for example, various people have had the idea, and it, ha- it was experimented on a little bit by people like Yuri Geller, uh, with things like dealing with radioactive waste psychically. Yeah. And this isn't just hocus-pocus. This is, I think, quite serious stuff. And in the 1990s, I, I ran a consciousness experiment, which is called the 100th Monkey Project, where we were working with um, uh, current events in a large group of about 100 people. And we were doing meditation, group process using talking stick, and various different psychotherapeutic methods adapted to this purpose. And we worked with uh, current events. And while you can't exactly say we did this or we did that, there were amazing synchronicities between the work we did and outcomes which arose. The most noticeable one, which was shocking, to us was in 1995 and we spent a hundred of us spent a whole day working with the Bosnia war uh, and it was an eight hour session and people didn't even want to stop for a pee break. It was that intense. Hmm. And we came out of it going, Oh, blimey, that was, that was an amazing thing. And then the next day someone heard on the news that while we had been in session, there was uh, a bombing of a marketplace in Sarajevo, Sarajevo, Sarajevo um, in which 60 people were killed. And we thought, oh, God, did we do that? Did we, were we part of that? But basically, time went on, and within five days, NATO went in, and the war was over. Yeah, yeah. And so that one event was the... The, the nexus point, it was the critical point which caused that intervention and it caused the end of that war. Mm. Um, and so it, it certainly, there certainly is the case that you can make a contribution towards even world events. And we worked with things like forest fires in the Amazon and in Indonesia as well and uh, stuff like that. And again, rain came and this was quite shocking stuff. It was also very deep and profound stuff. Yeah. And actually, I closed down that project because I felt we were going into areas which we wouldn't be able to successfully handle. 
And in retrospect, this is now 20, over 20 years ago. I'm glad I did that with regret because I don't think, I think we would have come a cropper. Yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, this kind of thing is for real. Well, this uh, is very similar to um, stuff that's been going on in the States with um, uh, Dean Radin and people like that uh, having meditators influencing random number generators and uh, tracking like uh, world events um, against the um, readouts from random number generators. Yes. There was a, yes. There was a, there was a big peak around 9-11, for example, things yes. like this. Yes, and people like the Fountains Group were working yeah. on it, yeah. smaller scale. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yes, there, there's quite a lot of uh, evidence that this kind of works. The Maharishi people as well, they, they got into it, you know, with their, with their uh, meditation and levitation and stuff like that. And so this is the kind of stuff we're bordering into, and geomancy relates to this, mm. because this kind of stuff presumably was done at some of the ancient sites in places like Stone Circles. And you get things like um, Tom Graves's uh, cyclotron effect, yeah, where he proposed that they created some sort of a spin in some of the circular uh, monuments, uh, which would create some sort of a special rarefied field within that monument where um, paranormal uh, activities could be carried out. Yeah. And I I would include in that uh, earth healing, uh, long-distance communication, um, weather invocation or modification, uh, and th- things like this, which which are all in the area of serious hocus pocus in in our current time, but we're faced with such a crisis today, such an insoluble number of different paradoxes and problems that we've got to deal with, uh, such as toxicity, just to just to deal just to take one, but also the. Uh, you look at the psychological state of humanity at the moment, and we're getting things like depression uh, as a major um, epidemic worldwide, um, and loneliness, and uh, extreme cases like people taking up a gun and killing people and stuff like that, which, mm. which arguably is things like psychiatric drugs and things like that. But it's not just that. It's the state of our society. It's the vibrational state. And if you think of the effect of having seven and a half billion people <coughs> on the planet today, all creating psychic activity, psychological activity, and it is not peaceful. Yeah. Um, then, and if you think that human population has doubled since you and I were children, then... Uh, we're we're dealing with an enormous psychobiophysical challenge here in the 21st century, and I think we have to border into some of these areas. I think we have to start working with it because we've got to get into the miracle zone. Yeah. So, what's your your best piece of advice you would give somebody who wants to change the planet, change the world? I'd say. Um, Get off. Uh, don't um, don't go into sensational stuff. Be willing to work at it for the whole of your life. 
do it regularly, uh, some things will be boring, tedious and repetitive, but sometimes you'll get amazing peak experiences and watch your motivation and stay clean and clear as much as you can and do your best. <laughs> yep that's, that's, what, that's what i'd say <laughs> it's, it's, your best. it's the great work it's a lifetime study so it yeah, is yeah uh so Pauline, we should wrap it up here because that's been more than an hour i guess although i could happily talk all day with you uh how can people get hold of you uh what's what's the best website to look at that sort of thing well my my own website is paulden.co.uk mm-hmm. that's p-a-l-d-e-n.co.uk or just google me i'm i'm quite uh prolific on online and yep. so not difficult to find uh but also uh i do run other sites one is the ancient pen west site which is ancientpenwest.org and then another one is about the future it's about the likely state of the world in 2050 and that's called possibilities2050.org and so between those three you'd probably get uh you know a good taste of my uh, rather prolific outpourings uh, in between bugs of tea yeah certainly prolific uh, i'm always in awe of the amount of stuff you do actually produce you're an inspiration to us all uh, yeah it's it's the it's one of the virtues of being a night owl you see and, you know, <laughs> my, my keyboard works overtime <laughs> <laughs> so paulden it's been really great talking to you thanks so much yeah, for your nice time talking to you too Woo. well i hope you enjoyed that rather high octane trip through the mind of paul Dewan. Uh, There is so much we could have spoken about that we could easily have talked all day. Uh, In fact, maybe I will have to record another podcast with him in the future. But in the meantime, you can find out more about Paulden's work on his various websites, of which his personal site is paulden.co.uk, that's P-A-L-D-E-N.co.uk. The Ancient Penwith site is at ancientpenwith.org. The other one he mentioned is possibilities2050.org. That's possibilities2050. And that's a site looking at possible futures for civilization on and life on planet Earth. And I do strongly urge you to have a look at that one. As usual, I'll put links to all of these on the main webpage. So that's it for this episode. If you have any comments, you can send me an email at podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com or leave a comment on individual episodes at the main website on adventuresindowsing.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, do drop us a line, or take a moment to give it a good review on iTunes. Uh, That really does help with uh, Google search rankings. So thanks for listening, and my thanks as always to Hilary Brooks, Not For Pussies, and Ian Pegler for the music, and I hope you can join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing. (laughs) 